and welcome back to our new arbitration podcast hosted by me, Vanessa Naish, and my colleague Liz Cantor. So today we thought we'd cover the latest news that the UK government plans to reverse the PACAR ruling. And we thought it might be interesting to look at those plans from an arbitration standpoint. So um, we're going to start by discussing what the implications might be for third party funding of arbitration and also whether there might be any wider implications for innovative fee arrangements in arbitration more broadly. Shall we start then with a quick update on what the PACAR ruling was and then we can move on to cover the arbitration angle? That's a good plan. Okay, so I think this whole topic is of interest to the arbitration community because there's generally some uncertainty or at least some perceived uncertainty about the interaction between the English regime for DBAs and CFAs and arbitration. Um, And there's also some quite interesting case law that sheds some light on some of those points too. Yes, thanks Vanessa. But before we move on to the arbitration piece, we have invited Maura McIntosh, a professional support consultant from our litigation team, to give us a quick recap on the PACAR case and what has happened as a consequence. So Maura, over to you. Thank you. Uh, I'm very pleased to be invited to speak on your new podcast. <laughs> so by PACAR, we're referring to the Supreme Court decision in PACAR and Road Haulage Association, which came out last July. In a nutshell, the Supreme Court decided in that case that litigation funding arrangements in which the funder receives a share of any damages recovered by the claimant are damages-based agreements, or DBAs, for the purposes of the relevant legislation, which is Section 58AA of the Courts and Legal Services Act 1990. And DBAs essentially are are no-win, no-fee agreements, also sometimes known as contingency fee agreements. But the Supreme Court's decision in PACA was a, a really big development because it essentially held that litigation funding agreements which provide for a share of damages have to comply with the strict requirements for DBAs as set out in the DBA regulations 2013. Now, before that decision, the funding community and and most of the legal community had assumed funding agreements were not DBAs and therefore didn't have to comply with that regime. And so the PACAR decision caused a lot of controversy when it came out because essentially the effect of that decision, certainly as as we all uh, read it was that most litigation funding agreements in existence at the time would be considered unenforceable as a result of it. Um, So, for example, one requirement for a DBA under the regulations is that the fee payable on success is limited to 50% of the sums ultimately recovered as damages. So if there's some other element payable on success, which could result in a payment of more than 50%, then the DBA is likely to be unenforceable. And Funding agreements, certainly before PACAR, would typically provide for the funder to be paid the greater of a percentage of damages or a multiple of funding committed, sometimes referred to as an underpinning multiple, which could obviously mean the fee going over the 50% threshold if the damages ended up being lower than was anticipated. Okay, so obviously the PACAR case arose in a, in a very specific context, which is collective proceedings in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Am I right, though, that the consequences aren't limited to that context? Yes, absolutely. The decision applies to all litigation funding agreements, at least where the funder charges a percentage of damages. The implications are particularly stark for opt-out collective proceedings in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, or or CAT, uh, because DBAs are prohibited in that context. So just a finding that a funding agreement is a DBA is enough to mean it's unenforceable, 
if it's for opt-out proceedings, okay. whether or not it complies with the regulations. Now, in November last year, the government tabled a, a an amendment um, to the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill to try and address the fallout from PACAR, but it was only aimed at reversing the ban on DBAs in opt-out collective proceedings so far as it relates to litigation funders. So funder DBAs in those proceedings would still need to comply with the DBA regulations. And I think that's something that's not always appreciated. So essentially that amendment would mean that all funding arrangements, including those in opt-out collective proceedings, are in the same boat. They either need to avoid falling within the definition of a DBA or else need to comply with the DBA regulations. And in terms of how funders can avoid their agreements being DBAs, I understand that the CAT has held that where the funder charges a multiple of the funding provided rather than a percentage of the damages, then it's not a DBA. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there are actually now three cases which looked at that point. There's the Sony case, a case against Visa and MasterCard and, and one against Apple. And in all three of those cases, the CAT found that a funding agreement based on a multiple of funding was not a DBA. Now, in each case, although the funder's fee was not calculated as a percentage of damages, it was still effectively capped by reference to the amount of the proceeds that would be recovered in the litigation or, or a subset of those proceeds, essentially the amount that would be available to the class representative. In two of the cases, in fact, the cap was provided for expressly in the agreement. And in each case, the defendant argued, among other things, that the um, existence of this cap meant the agreement was still uh, a DBA, but but the CAT disagreed. And the judgments really suggest that the proper approach is to consider whether, in substance, the amount of the proceeds determines the size of the funder's fee and isn't just a, a factor that, that might affect the size of the fee. Um, you, you have to stand back and, and take a common sense view, the CAT said. So I think where the fee is calculated as a multiple of funding, even with a CAT based on damages, the agreement based on those decisions is, is probably unlikely to be a DBA. Although I should say the cases leave open the possibility that a cap based on damages could transform the funding agreement into a DBA in some circumstances, depending on the, the purpose of the cap. Uh, and, and actually, I should also say these cases are going to appeal, uh, or at least, uh, at least two of them are. So there's still quite a lot of room for uncertainty on, on all of this, I think. Great. So understandably, it seems that many funders have moved towards a multiple approach in their new agreements. And have also amended some existing ones in live cases. But what about where the cases have concluded so there's no chance to actually amend the agreement? Um, you mentioned that before PACAR, funding agreements typically provided for the funder to be paid the higher of a percentage of damages or a multiple of the funding provided. So how is this playing out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That that was the typical structure, which which all of that really leads to the next piece of interesting case law, which looked at whether a funder can enforce provisions in funding agreements where there is this choice or this sort of traditional uh, type of structure that hasn't been amended. So can the funder be paid the multiple of funding if the alternative option, the payment of the percentage of damages is, is unenforceable? Am I right that that's, that's the Therium litigation case? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Therium and Bugsby property. Um, and in that case, the High Court held that there was a, a serious issue to be tried as to whether the element of a funding agreement which provided for the multiple of funding remained enforceable, even though it was accepted that the share of damages provision was DBA and was unenforceable. So the funded party 
said the whole agreement was unenforceable, so basically we didn't have to pay anything to the funder, uh, even though the funded party accepted it would have been enforceable if the funder's fee had only been based on a multiplier, uh, a multiplier or multiple. Uh, Ethereum's position was that only part of the agreement was unenforceable, um, only that part that provided for the share of damages. And that was, they said, either because the uh, provision which entitled Theorem to a multiple of committed funding wasn't part of the DBA at all, so wasn't infected by the breach of the DBA regulations, or, and this is a similar but slightly different argument, because the offending provision for the payment of the percentage could be severed from the rest of the funding agreement. Um, the decision was referred to an arbitral tribunal to determine, as I said, that the High Court was just um, had to decide that there was a, whether there was a serious issue to be tried. And so it will go to an arbitral tribunal to determine the point because there was an arbitration clause in the funding agreement. So unfortunately, uh, that decision won't be public. Uh, and I should also mention, I've mentioned Ethereum, uh, but Omni Bridgeway, I understand, was also involved in that matter. It's a tricky thing to say as an arbitration lawyer, but it's quite annoying that we're unlikely to see the outcome of that decision. Indeed, yes, it's much easier to say it as a, as a, as a litigator. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Thank you, Maura. That's a very helpful recap. Um, so now I suggest let's fast forward to the latest news, which is that the UK Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, told the FT recently that the government will be reversing what he called the damaging effects of PACAR, in his words, at the first legislative opportunity. Obviously, no detail has been given on what the proposal would be, but presumably the aim would be to ensure that litigation funding agreements are not DBAs, even if they provide for the funder to receive a percentage of damages so that they're not subject to the DBA regulations. Whether the government decides to actually change the regulatory requirements for DBAs remains to be seen, though. Absolutely. And quite, uh, quite what the first legislative opportunity is actually going to be is also rather an open question, I think. OK, so um, now that we're up to date, Liz, shall you and I talk a little bit about how all of this interacts with arbitration? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think the first point is that obviously arbitration involves a complex interaction of many different legal systems and rules. So um, given that the many potential jurisdictions which may be involved in a single arbitration, this presents a particular challenge when ass assessing the legality of fee arrangements, whether that's between solicitors and their clients or between clients and funders. You need to think about where the arbitration is seated, the professional conduct role, rules of the solicitors, either in their home jurisdiction or where they're practising or both, um, and possibly also the law governing the fee arrangement itself. Um, I think that's the point at which I'll bow out and leave you to mention the more knotty parts in terms of the jurisdictional reach of the statute. Thanks, Liz. That's really, really cruel. OK, <laughs> um, so the um, Courts and Legal Services Act um, 1990 um, regulates both DBAs, such as the one in the PACAR case, and also um, conditional fee arrangements, which are known as CFAs. So a CFA is where a client pays a discounted hourly rate, which is then uplifted in the event of success. Now, under the legislation in respect of CFAs, um, the legislation will apply where advocacy services or litigation services are provided. And both of those terms are quite broadly defined. But importantly, the definition of them expressly states that um, proceedings, which is part of that definition, includes 
any sort of proceedings for resolving disputes and not just proceedings in court. And that language was actually inserted with the intention of broadening the, broadening the scope to arbitral proceedings. But DBAs also have this additional element, don't they, um, where the um, legislation applies also to where claims management services are provided. And the PACAR decision actually focused on the provision of claims management services. Uh, this is defined to mean the provision of advice or a service, which can include financial services or assistance. So in PACAR, which of course related to DBAs, the Supreme Court held that the litigation funders were providing claims management services. But um, unlike the definitions of advocacy services and litigation services, this definition has not expressly been extended beyond court proceedings. Um, so there's perhaps an argument, isn't there, that the Packard decision and its implications don't actually apply to DBAs that are intended to fund arbitrations. Yeah, so I think that argument could be run, but it's also worth bearing in mind that there are a few inconsistencies across the legislation in relation to its application to arbitration. I'm not going to go into it in a great deal of detail, but, but for example, there's a definition of the right to conduct litigation. Now, that doesn't actually extend to um, arbitration. It talks solely about um, litigation in the English court. But that definition of right to conduct litigation actually sits within a definition which extends to proceedings, which does include arbitration. So it doesn't feel like a coherent whole as a piece of legislation when it comes to its application to arbitration. And because of that, I would expect at least that, that funders might have taken the precaution of quite a conservative view here and are operating on the basis that, that arbitration could also be covered. Yeah, and at the risk of being incredibly annoying, we've talked about arbitration. Um, and what do we mean when we talk about arbitration? Are we talking about any arbitration or just English seated arbitration, given we're talking about English legislation? OK, I'll put my hands up. You're absolutely right to pick me up on that. So um, this legislation is designed to protect the integrity of the English justice system and is concerned with proceedings within the jurisdiction. So that would, I think, make it limited to English seated arbitration. We do actually have one case which confirms that the regime applies to arbitration and English seated arbitration uh, as well. And that was the case of Diag Human and um, Volterra Fieta. Now that case concerned a conditional fee arrangement drawn up by a law firm in the context of an English seated ad hoc investment treaty arbitration. And in that case, um, the CFA was found to be unenforceable because the success fee or the uplift um, exceeded 200% of the benchmark fees. Now, slightly annoyingly, I believe that in that case, there wasn't actually a preliminary question as to whether or not, or how indeed, the CFA regime actually applied to the arbitration. And it was just assumed to apply or at least, you know, the judgment that we've uh, all got doesn't address the issue itself. OK, so that case was essentially confirming how the legislation applies in the context of CFAs. Um, should we now loop back to PACAR and the government's plans to legislate against it? Um, it's arguable, as discussed then, that an English seated arbitration would not be affected by PACAR, but we're not sure whether funders would be willing to take that risk. 
if efforts were made to reverse the impact of PACAR, I think funders would definitely want to make sure that their position is clear in respect to both arbitration and litigation. Yeah, and I also think it's going to be interesting to see you know, what these government plans are to reverse PACAR. You know, is it just talking about the piece of legislation that we were referring to earlier, or, or is it actually going to you know, reopen um, the CLSA on the DBA regs? And, and does that actually then offer arbitration practitioners a chance to get some of that messy drafting that I've mentioned you know, sorted out so that law firms and third party funders um, quite know what they're doing here in terms of success based fee arrangements? Good point. Right, we could stop there, or while we're looking at um, funding, we could end briefly by covering the um, SR and 10K uh, decisions, which involve the question of whether an English-seated arbitral tribunal can award the costs of third-party funding. Okay, so this is a bit of a whistle-stop tour of um, of English (laughs) cases on horrible, uh, thorny issues. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so um, I guess the key point to make to understand the impact of SR is that um, the costs of third party funding are not recoverable in English court litigation. And that's due to a narrow definition of costs in the CPR. But in both of the SR and 10K cases, the arbitral tribunals um, awarded the winning party the costs of funding, so the costs involved of third party funding. Um, And they relied on Section 59.1c of the Arbitration Act. And and that provision refers to the costs of arbitration as the legal or other costs of the parties. Right. And this raises the question of whether other costs here could or should include funding costs and also whether there should be a difference between English litigation and English seated arbitration in terms of recovering those costs. Yeah, that's exactly the question. So if we start with SR. So SR challenged um, an arbitral award under Section 68 of the Arbitration Act on the basis that the sole arbitrator exceeded his powers in including the costs of third party funding within uh, the costs award. And that challenge was unsuccessful. So the judge concluded that the tribunal did have the power to award those costs of funding, regardless of the different regime for litigation. And a really important point here is that the judge held that even if the arbitrator was wrong about the meaning of other costs, that couldn't actually be the basis of a Section 68 challenge because the arbitrator wasn't exceeding their powers. um, He was just wrongly exercising those powers. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, um, this is a case where the facts played a really important role um, because the arbitrator's finding was essentially that um, it was a David and Goliath um, battle um, and SR was essentially crippling Norscott so that it had no choice but to seek funding. Yeah, so you're right. That was a really important point and was no doubt a, a factor in the decision. Right. Can I hand over to you to cover 10K? Yes, sure. So this is the case of Tenke Mining and Katanga, um, which similarly involved a Section 68 challenge that was rejected. Um, Katanga was awarded its costs of funding, which in this case was actually a shareholder loan with a fixed fee plus interest payable upon success. Tenke claimed that it could never have been reasonably intended when the Arbitration Act was passed that the the award of costs as used in the Arbitration Act would include fees paid to third party funders or indeed the costs related to taking out a loan like in this case, um, particularly because such fees are not recoverable as costs in English court litigation. However, that was rejected. 
But having said that, the judge didn't actually comment on whether other costs um, should include the cost of funding like the court did in the SR case. The point was also made that if Tenke wanted to argue that there was a wrongful exercise of power by the tribunal, the remedy didn't fall within Section 68 in terms of a serious irregularity, but instead under Section 69 of the Act, i.e. you'd need to bring a challenge on a point of law. Okay, so there is at least a chance that we could hear more on this point if a, if a Section 69 challenge was brought on that basis. Yes, although we might be waiting a while, given that most parties obviously exclude Section 69 challenges, um, especially through the adoption of institutional rules. Yeah, you're probably right. It's not worth holding our breath on that one. Um, okay, great. Thanks both. Um, I think that's enough of a foray into the world of funding and arbitration costs. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Maura. Thanks.